We always get through this with this microphone. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for letting me know. Yeah. Anybody else? Can you hear me now? Yes. Good. Well, you. I'm sure you do. You can hear anything in this room, back, even a butterfly. So, yes. To go back to the Buddhist teaching. This truth of suffering. You know, there was time when. I remember as a young nun, so that's about 10 years down the road, I felt I just can't stand talking about suffering anymore. I was observing my mind, thinking like that, of course. By then, I had some space between me and my conditioned mind, who by then had become just a good friend to help me to continue freeing my heart. Right? It wasn't a problem anymore. It wasn't the dukkha that leads to more dukkha. It was a dukkha that leads to the end of dukkha. Thank goodness for that. Right? So, has anybody realized that dukkha or suffering, often translated as other, by other concepts, such as stress, such as that which is difficult to bear with, and of course suffering, as we know it. So often you wonder, you know, you may wonder, why did the Buddha kind of taught, the, the core of this teaching starts with there is dukkha. But when he defines his teaching, he says, uh, I teach two things. If you really want to have a Buddha in a nutshell, there's a very convenient way of doing it. He just says, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha. And in a way, um, in my experience, before even I was a nun, 
I'll go back to my being fed up with suffering, don't worry. Because it led me to something else more important. But when I was, uh, you know, a younger, a younger woman and a uh, young woman, and I was just uh, searching myself. Obviously, I was searching. I didn't even know. I didn't call myself as a searcher. But I was probably experiencing what the Buddha talks about, searching for something. We don't quite know what it is. And I never like to kind of label or encapsulate the object of my search uh, in, into any words or ideas or concept because it seemed like so much limiting what the possibilities of my mind could be in terms of searching, in terms of uh, wishing for something you don't even know, wanting something you don't know, because the material desire for materiality, I mean, you can know that very well. You can even buy it, you can even get it, you can even change it, you can even throw it in the bin, come back and get in new things. You, know, you can do what you want with material um, you know, the object of desire is on, on a material level. But you might not be able to get it because the conditions in your life are not present for these to happen. But, um, you know, this kind of um, search, you know, when I realized that one day this kind of insight, you know, a kind of was, became very clear to me, and I don't think it's very personal insight. I don't think it could be anything like, like that. Maybe for anybody else, it was just the sense of, oh, yeah, there is suffering on one on, on one side of the hand, and the clear understanding I had at that moment, which was not pretty conceptual, like an insight, was the other side is joy. Now I wasn't particularly committed to any spiritual path. It was, I was very lucky <laughs> to get this before I started. You know, and because that really brought a big open door in front of me and I was free from fear. I'm not, I'm not saying that I didn't have to work with fear for many years, sometimes decades afterwards, but that suddenly realization that I was not boxed in into the suffering of the human life. I was not kind of prisoner or, uh, you know, a, a captive of this kind of life we call human, this human world with its demand, its wonderful, uh, you know, treasures, and it's also terrific kind of dramas and suffering. So, so this is not something that the world externally might give you any confidence into because the world is so complex and so mega that you feel totally overwhelmed as a thought of being able to even change anything because there's so many things that are not really very happy in this world. Let's face it. You know, it's just have to look at the world today. And I'm sure this went on in the 1800s and it's not new. You know, we just have different conditions. But this realization that there was an end to suffering, right? At first, this idea of suffering being inconvenient, it is truly inconvenient for a human mind, a human being, let's say, who has no other knowledge of the mind, who have no other perspective 
on the visions of the mind, who is not able to make sense of things. And the only way you can make sense of things is by really working really hard, thinking really hard about things, or, or just enjoying yourself and just forgetting about the brain, you know, just getting as many, as much pleasure as one can from life. And maybe for a while, just diverting oneself, um, you know, just doing things that we enjoy doing will ease off, you know, this dukkha. So we don't, you know, I, I would not see dukkha as a path to follow. We don't follow dukkha. We just follow a path that liberates us from the unnecessary suffering that we create and which become totally apparent when you really walk the path of the awakening of the, to the heart-mind, the awakening that the Buddha talks about. You know, the liberation of the mind. So, um, even when you get this insight I was talking to you about, you don't necessarily, that does not end. Because dukkha is really the symptoms of, um, of a human mind, a human being, who has not yet freed himself or herself from identifying with everything or anything, with your mind, with your body, with your feeling, with your mood, with your perception, with your ideas, with your views, with your opinions, with your likes and dislikes. There's a big mass of stickiness in ourselves. We stick to these things. And but we don't also have no other alternative in ourselves to really feel confident that we can move forward. You know, very often it will take what the Buddha talks about, you know, to really walking and cultivating the path that he established, you know, the Noble Eightfold Path, to begin to get a, a glimpse of what he meant, to begin to get a sense that it might be possible for me too to ease off the suffering that is inherent with a mind that has not let go yet of its suffering, for one thing, but also that has not found a way to let go of the attachment of the investment we have in our mind and body. And we know so well how the mind can be such a source of incredible, you know, dukkha, incredible stress, misery. So many, I mean, you know, or, you know as well as me, what people go through in the world, from deep depression to wanting to kill oneself, to feeling completely lost, abandoned, and completely alone in this vast universe. And as you get older, all your friend leaves you as well, or go away, or do different things. Parents leave you, and tr friends leave you. You know, they pass away. Or so there's a lot of loneliness as well in this world, and it's quite really it's very frightening, you know, to imagine a future nowadays, because the future is so uncertain. The future is so fraught with, you know. Climate, climate change and the famous inconvenient truth of Al Gore, 
that's been challenged to death, I think, by so many other, the other side who disagree with, with him. So even the people bringing, you know, a good news, I mean, sort of waking up people to the possibility of not being able to live on this planet for very long, still you find people detractors, people who are really against waking up, knowing, you know, and that people are free to, to live the way they want. I mean, there's not like a, nobody has to tell you what to do. And that was a message of the Buddha. That's why I like this teaching. It's because once you see the dukkha and you have a glimpse that there is an end of freedom from dukkha, clearly, deeply, then you, you know, naturally you wake up. Now, we may wake up from time to time, you know, but we have very little ways to actually continue the journey of waking up. Mostly, I mean, I would like to say for you who live in a very uh, complex world outside the monastery, it's pretty complex here, but in its own way, the encouragement is to keep things simple in oneself. So it's complex externally, but internally, you create, you have space for the complexity of this life as a human being, internally and externally, to give, um, you know, a, a vision of all that, which enables the mind to continue the path of liberation, to continue the path of letting go, the realization of the end of dukkha, the confidence that grows as you become strong on your path and you have no, the, all these millions of doubts that, you know, inhabits consciousness and that paralyzes us. You know, we can be so kind of stuck in our questions with no answer and hoping for an answer, hoping for something that becomes very clear to me, hoping to be suddenly, you know, illuminated and turn into an instant Buddha. So it's good when we talk about this inconvenient truth because really there's not just dukkha, there's also the cause of dukkha. It's, it's a teaching that really asks us to think for oneself and to reflect. It really works well with reflective mind, with people that really enjoy just thinking creatively. Creatively. Which means what? It's not thinking, now filling up, filling up one's mind with lots of miserable questions that keeps going around and around because you don't know how to let them go when they're not useful anymore. Or maybe, um, you know, having thought of that kind of stems from worry and anxiety and fear. So, uh, so that have their source uh, at the level of, you know, when you get really frustrated and angry and raging about things. Lots of thought. We can have many, many thoughts in our mind. When you talk about the, the, the thought that's creative, it's a thought that comes out when the mind that is at peace with itself. at peace with itself. Which means there's a, a little work to do, as you can see. We don't quite know how to make peace with ourselves, do we? We don't quite know how to understand that the mind is trainable if you look at it with a kind heart, with a kind eye, eyes, with a view that is caring. You're not beating yourself up to death because you've forgotten you know, uh, something or 
because you you have been unmindful for a moment, or somebody has criticized you and you unfortunately got involved in believing what people say blindly, which means somebody says something bad about you, and the immediate response is that you react and start making them feel bad as well, you know? So the, the, the duel is, I don't know how you say, duel in French, I don't know, you say, the battle is even, you even out. <laughs> you give me dukkha, I'll give you dukkha too. Of course, we don't even think like that, it's automatic. It's an automatic response. Once you look at your mind from a place of really uh, clear vision, from a clear view, right view, then I'm not saying it's easy. But you have a way of being lighter with yourself. You have a way of not taking yourself so seriously, so personally. Right? But that is really difficult for all of us until you have more of the deeper strength and confidence to know that me, I, no one will ever be perfect. No one will ever be just a person we want to be. No one will be able to please everybody or even one's partner, one person, for good, you know. As Achen Samedo used to say, the perfection is to accept imperfection totally. Now, when he said that, of course, everybody laughed a lot. <laughs> because it was so true. You know, truth makes us really laugh and liberating. It's a liberating experience. You know, when you hear something that you know is true yourself, because all of us have the ability to tap into what is true in ourselves. All of us. But really, it takes quite something to be able to touch that level, okay, of uh, integrity and a level of clarity and a level of peace and acceptance of things as they are, to be able to really um, move on, you know, allow the, oneself to be transformed by that experience. And let's face it, you know, the world of responsibility, all the thing you have to do is a, a great source, great source of dukkha. You know, one can cope with the, the, you know, what's going on outside here without the teaching, maybe without the support of people practicing all around us, you know. You can, you know, you can sort of find a little niche and stay very quiet somewhere or don't, not make a lot of waves or you know, and just have a nice little world for oneself. But at some point, there's something in us that keeps growing. <laughs> That's the inconvenient truth. <laughs> it keeps growing. It keeps realizing that, ah, oh, that doesn't feel right either. <laughs> I've got everything I want, everything I need, everything I wish for. Ten years ago, I've wished for all of this to happen. And yet, there we are. That truth, that inconvenient truth is still popping up its head to remind us that the world, our human life, is not just, doesn't stop as just comfort, you know, convenience. And that is, the, the, you could say, the, the happiness in my heart to see people who are also interested in that because, in a way, 
no matter how what you get what you would get in this life no matter where you would be in in this life when i think of not that i was very fond of maggie satcher but sure, i'm sure as one woman we made it to the top i don't think she has a lot of happiness and in the end she died with you know dementia and so all the rest of it so always struck me you know that this poor woman you know who was really trying the way she thought would be good may well, no, might not agree with many many of us but still as a woman i was interested to see this this person where she was at she didn't have the idea i had about life or about society but you still connect with a human being people were president high very high in the state you know in kind of social status we would like to be there don't we some of us, some of you may want to be right up you know right up there and then we were, we know very well that people were very rich people were very uh unsuccessful unless they have been practicing the buddha dharma you right they they will suffer too so whether we are poor or rich successful or unsuccessful you know people love us at some point they stop loving you you know not just individually but also as a teacher or as a guru or as a expert or as a great man great woman you know great professional in one field or another people love you and then after that that changes easily they start looking at all the flaws that you may have all the things that are wrong because the mind just works like that it's like an automatic pilot it's a blind pilot it has modes of functioning which are very simple which are so simple you don't never notice that it's like i like and the whole world of i like is as big as the earth i don't like and it's as big as several earths <laughs> rounds of existence you know so you you can really have fun you can play around with things you like and things you don't like you know you get when you are 16 or 17 you know you crazy to do the most crazy things you want to do all kind of things you know then you get exhausted you take all the drugs you want you take all the, you have all the partners you want all the boyfriends all the sex you want all the all the music you want all the party you want and so on and so forth you just grow up like you don't want to play with dolls forever right when you were a little girl we would like to play with dolls you know we like to play with sandcastle and things like that you know but after a while who cares you know mind you i hope you go back sometime to just being really a, a bit frivolous trying to be just a little girl again you know playing with sandcastle but i wouldn't get bored anymore i would just look at the sand and will enjoy it and the sea probably so um let me talk to you a little bit how to deal and how to work with this dukkha it's only inconvenient for a mind that hasn't yet experienced the awakening the awakening experience to the role of dukkha in our human life the the truth of this experience of this constant dukkha i mean it's not just dukkha having uh you know being sick or having a bad day or anything like that it's actually 
It's a dukkha, it's an exi- also a great part of it is this existential dukkha that we just feel a sense of malaise about this. We, we feel not quite comfortable. We don't quite know where we fit in this universe, you know. We try to find a place. We try to find, but still, we know we haven't found a place yet. Even with the best girlfriend, boyfriend, or partner, or best cats, the best dog, you know, the best pet. <laughs> still, at least a pet is sweet. It doesn't ask for anything much in return, doesn't it? Except food. <laughs> and a walk, maybe. But if we, you know, if we don't pay, you know, bring our attention to another level of dukkha, which is not just external, you know, the fact that my life situation is might not be very good, and I worry. Maybe that my body might be suffering from disease, and uh, you know, I worry also a lot about that. One can worry by the fact that we don't know, you know, the maybe the, the fear of having a, a, a you know a disease like cancer or most horrible things. You know, I mean cancer. I mean I just heard yesterday um well you know a person telling me of uh, you know a young boy f- suffering from kidneys that are just deteriorating little by little. And I felt so kind of moved by that. A little boy, not isn't you know, like ten, twelve. Can you imagine what it must be like to have your body already not going right when you're so young? Little children, little babies, you know, already gone born with cancer. So life is truly dukkha. And to go back to this um internal, the actually existential dukkha, the part of the what we discover in ourselves, which is what we call the mind itself, is this, um, you know, this kind of, the fact that everything is uncertain. We suffer so much because we believe this convenient truth to think that I can control life, I can control my mind, I can control my partner, I can control my parents. I think that illusion is gone very quickly at some point. Because you know, parents have somehow some power over you at some level. They're bigger and older than you. That's already makes them, you know, difficult to overpower them. Unless you're terribly rude and miserable and awful to them, then they might just let you go. <laughs> but the fact when you practice meditation, let's say, the, the Buddhist meditation is about looking inwardly from a place of non-attachment. What does that mean? I mean, you, you, this, there's an ex, there was an expression 40 years ago which I really like. That was the expression that was used as a kind of a expression of an awakened mind. I find it like in Krishnamurti uh, books. You know, bear attention. Yes, bear attention. You just look with a peacefully. You know, you just look. It's neither happy nor unhappy. You just look. So this is not a vision that's very entertaining for people, or very exciting even, or anything. So the Buddhist meditation brings you to that place where. For some reason, people are very interested nowadays in Buddhist meditation. 
Many people think it's really good for relaxing, it's good for uh, letting things go, it's good to have a happy mind, you know, peaceful happy mind, maybe a more generous heart, more kind heart, and so on. But the Buddha teaching, the Buddhist teaching, is really um, guiding you to see reality as it is. So reality, when I look inside myself, for example, I notice that things are changing all the time, and I, the best insight I had is realizing that there was a thinker in there that wasn't me. I don't know if you've had this experience. You have a thinker who is not you. Now, I can repeat a story which I've said you know, many, many times, but it's worthwhile just to... Maybe you have had the same experience. When I was in London and I was waiting for a bus on Euston Road, I had on a retreat already with Achin Sumedho and I had, I had really observed my thinking mind for 10 days. And I really thought I was very clear about the thinking mind. But there was an aspect of this that wasn't clear. Unt until I had this insight, I realized, oh, I never saw that before. And what I, what I saw at that moment was that I was going somewhere, doing maybe some work or something, and suddenly, for some reason, I began to be really interested in the uh, design of cars. Now, I have never driven. I did, I, I did take many, many driving lessons, but on the day I was having the test, I forgot it. <laughs> and I was quite young. I got distracted by other things. And for some reason, yeah. So I think it was the universe helping me to die older than I was at the time. I really thought in my heart of heart, I think, thank you for not making me drive on the road because I was, you know, the tendency would be, we all have a little maverick in us, you know, and I was always very confident is my... Spatial, 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 space. My space control, I was very good. The space was very my friend. I was very comfortable. I could see things quite far. I could sort of remember space very well and so on. So I think because of that, I would have probably overtaken cars thinking I have plenty of space to go over that. And maybe one day I might have misjudged that. So, but anyway, um, I was on this road and looking at designs of car. Now, I like beautiful things, let's face it. You know, I like beautiful things. I'm French, you know, and we are born with this obsession with beauty. And so um, I was starting to have my critics, of, of course, we started ticking in, you know, I think, that honestly, you know, Citroën, it could do better than that, really. Look at the, I, I saw the Mini was very, very wonderful. The upgrade of Mini, I thought, was really fantastic, what the British could do with an old car. And I began to complain about the French and the American, and, you know, you're just not up to that. You've got. And then suddenly, I, I suddenly, there was a listening of this. <laughs> you know, my mind was just, I could see my mind coming and going, this car, that car, and so on. But suddenly, something shifted. Maybe I just got more space, which we, that's what happened in meditation. I got more space, and suddenly I saw somebody talking who wasn't me. How oh, interesting, you know, who is that? So, basically, that brought me to the truth of anatta. Not that I didn't see things in mind, me and mind, for a long time and suffered, 
you know, don't get me wrong, I didn't get that straight away. But at that moment, there was really a profound insight into the fact that there is a universe in there that's happening without me. You understand? And so, at some point, you just want to really find out which me you want to live with. <laughs> you want to find out who is going to be guiding you with a me. So for me, anyway, what happens? You know, it's like what happened at the time. I just find myself eventually tittered, and uh, there I am, 40 years later, I'm, I'm in this robe and I'm talking to you. But um, so a lot of our, uh, you know, knowledge from the meditation practice leads us to this understanding of what I think, what I feel, what I do, what I tell myself, what I remember, what I anticipate, and so on, actually is a push-button mechanism. Most of the time, I'm not saying all the time, most of the time we are push-button inside. It's called habits. Yeah? I know. It's an inconvenient truth, isn't it? to think we're just made up of blind habits. And we are. A lot of the time, we are made up of truly blind habits. Not just blind, but also quite committed to not see the truth. <laughs> quite committed to be truly, uh, you know, a very sweet liar, as I used to call the mind once. The sweet liar. So when you begin to look at yourself from uh, this you know, meditation practice, or just the awareness, just as you become conscious, aware, mindful, and so on. You can do it when you are on, the, on your cushions, when you walk, when you catch a train, when you meet friends, and so on. You meditate at some point. You, meditation is part of your world. You just don't let go of something that has always existed anyway. Called mindfulness, awareness, doesn't need you. It's there. But at some point, we use this mindfulness, awareness, to begin to look at things more deeply and more attentively, more vigilantly. And when we do this, then you can start having a bit more space all around and a bit more space. In a way, space is an element of consciousness, you know. I was told, but I feel that too. Consciousness, you know, is element of water, earth, fire, air, and that's it. <laughs> and then space as the element of consciousness. So this consciousness, awareness, consciousness, um, you know, helps us to kind of begin to have a, a, a distance between us and the space of our mind and to see that it does not belong to us. It does not belong. My soul do not belong to me. My feeling do not belong to me. My perception do not, does not belong to me. My story seems like it really does belong to me, doesn't it? My personal story. Yet, it's a story that's been concocted with all these things that are not mine. Do you understand? Truly not mine. And this inconvenient truth is truly inconvenient because... It's like climate change, you know. Something in us has always known the truth at some level, but nobody has come to help us 
to see it clearly. So you have all these external and internal entities that keep saying, you're a terrible person, you know, you look at that, you can't do this, you can't do that, you're a horrible man, you're horrible women, you know, she's horrible, he's horrible, you know, life is terrible, blah, blah, blah. Until you wake up and you realize that life is basically a projection of your own reality. In a way, sometimes I would say we are a, mir a walking miracle because we have great power to change our life. But we have to get really interested. You have to really commit yourself to the Dhamma in some ways. You know, I mean, I'm talking, you know, from my own experience, not inventing it or making you feel good. Basically, when I say miracle, it's not a miracle of you're going to see, you know, lights and things and suddenly everything's going to happen fine. It's not that. It means this changing nature of the mind is enabling transformation, is enabling what you wish to happen, okay, when you put your heart into the, onto the path. Now, most of us want to happen, you know, one thing to happen according to what I want. Now, can you imagine yourself letting things happening by actually letting the mind go? Now, this doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> and it's not that you won't let go of things and get terrified by fear. You know, who am I then? What am I? No. So just, I'm, I just say a few more words about the past and how to see the suffering. So the suffering has a cause has three causes, which we know very well. The first cause is stated as at, you know, desire for sense pleasure, tanha, kama tanha, you know, attachment to sense pleasure, desire for sense pleasure. Now, of course, when you hear this, the whole world is so addicted to sense pleasure, say, God, I think I've got to die then if I have to let go of sense pleasure. You know, the, the mind projects itself into a miserable scenario immediately, easily. Immediately, you get frightened. You know, it's like, oh my God, what about my ice cream? What about my, f my favorite film? What about my holidays in Greece, you know? What about the pleasure I get when I go skiing in the Alps? What about the pleasure, pleasure I get when I feel beautiful things around me, whether it's human being? or furniture, or food, or whatever, you know, pleasant things. Am I going to have a husband on all this? Oh, God, you know, you start wanting maybe to be following another path, don't you? Something much more fun and distracting, in a way, from the truth. But, so, in meditation, remember, we're not trying to make ourselves be anything. We're just looking at ourselves from a completely dispassionate, peaceful, uh, clear mind. And that's when you need some guidance. That's when you need some support. Because what we see in that inconvenient, you know, that inconvenient truth is truly inconvenient. You know, it's difficult to bear. It's difficult to bear to see all the accumulation of oneself and the habits we have. And, you know, our habits are not very kind you'll see very unkind habits. But fortunately, if you begin to practice and see cause and effect, cause and effect clearly, 
You know, see, when, when this happened, this happened, when this happened, that happened. Then you begin to see, oh, when I'm more awake, when I'm more present, when I'm more clear in myself, you begin maybe at some point to see clearly things go more quickly. Things that I suffer from can leave me more quickly. You don't have to speed them up, you know, like stress, trying to speed things out and push them and kick them with, you know, trying to get them, them out of your home, which is yourself. But you can see, if you don't interfere with your experience, they are like, Ajahn Chah used to say, gave the example of, if you see a cobra sliding in front of you, obviously he might have seen some in his meditation you know, situations and so on, because lots of them in Thailand, you know. Uh, he said, if you don't touch him, it, then it, it won't harm you. Just goes along, you know, for, out from his siesta onto food. You know, if you don't touch it, and you, if you're a deep, deep meditator, you know, they, usually you're quite empty, maybe. And so either they feel a lot of metta, the animals in the, in the forest, they feel a lot of metta, or just feel just there's nobody there. This emptiness of self, emptiness of self, there's no one there. I have, exper- have experimented with animals. It's really some, worth experimenting. Uh, you know, when I go near birds, maybe you can try it yourself, when I go near birds or dogs, or, or when I was in Thailand, there was a dog I used to go and pin the pad for a period of time, and there was this really crazy young dog coming at me with teeth, like nasty kind of teeth, like white and long, you know. And it, I, I, I'm glad I did not know its name. It's one of those horrible dogs that can kill people. You know, there's about two or three like that that are really dangerous, very dangerous. Fortunately, they didn't have the name in English in Thailand. But anyway, I met him, it or him, uh, fairly regularly. And But that was one of them. I mean, there's many animals around here that you can play with, squirrels included. And so when you, it doesn't always work, but you notice when you walk really empty in your mind, completely empty, they don't notice you until you come quite close. So they start feeling your presence. But before that, they're happily, they're completely ignoring you. So there's a way, you can take almost, what comes to my mind, you can almost take this story for your inside birds and inside animals, you know, your thoughts, your feeling, you can turn them into, when you don't touch, touch them, they just slide. They let go by themselves. You don't have to do anything. So once you see, when you get a little kind of inkling of that, of this, our capacity to let things go, to get the skill, you get the, 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 you got a tool and then you get more skill and more and more skill to let things go, which is quite, in a way, counterintuitive. Because when we want things to go, we take the tool and we push them away. You know, we're not so subtle. We don't know that kind of going away that manifests when we stop touching things. When you stop bothering things, when you stop controlling things, when you stop worrying about things, when you stop hating them, this is a mind potential. To have this capacity to see clearly the dukkha and then 
see clearly a path that leads you to the end of dukkha, that is in your power, in your capacity as a human being. You don't need a PhD for that. In fact, a PhD could be preventive and an obstacle if you're not careful, because you have... You have cultivated such an intelligent and clever mind that the idea of doing nothing is absolutely abhorrent, awful, terrible. So this is what monks and nuns do. You know, we keep on clearing the path. We keep on learning the skill of letting go. And sometimes the obstacles are big. You know, the fears, the obstacle of... Uh, not getting what you want. You know, how many of you today, in a simple, ordinary day, if you remember not getting what you wanted, from just the right cup of tea to the weather that you're thinking about tomorrow, not even today, just that you're thinking about tomorrow in one month's time when I'm in China or in Hong Kong somewhere or in Thailand, you know, I'm glad I worked on my mind because I'm looking at the weather in Delhi when I will be in December. And if I was attached to it, I could be really miserable. So we have a capacity to cultivate this inconvenient truth to the point of making our life a hell realm. Right? And it's about time that this inconvenient truth discovered for us, not, yeah, discovered by the Buddha, can be turned around, can be used for liberation now. And I've seen so many of my friends, you know, long-term lay people who have worked on that. You don't have to become, you know, don't wait to be a monk or a nun, you know, because you could be waiting for a long time. We don't have women after 15 who are here. So anybody <laughs> above 50 won't be able to be a nun here. And I don't know about the monks. I think it's about the same. So don't wait to be a monk. You know, just do it now, straight away. Yeah. So learning how to let to let the cobra, you know, as an image of the the you could say the train of your, the the train of thoughts or the train of perception or the train of stories, all these things that you see when you meditate and look inwardly. You begin to see the world that arises and passes away. Another world arises and passes away. Most people, when they are become Buddhist, unfortunately, after having, having read so many books on Buddhism and have observed in mind what happened, they spend the next 50 years telling themselves they are bad Buddhists because they're not doing it right, according to them. You know, that's, that's the unfortunate truth. That's a very unfortunate. How many people just haven't seen the critical mind yet to let go of any ideas about how they should be or not be, but just trust the result in your daily life. Trust whether you can apply the teaching in your daily life in the way that it makes a difference, that you can see it does make a difference. Sometimes you have, to, unfortunately, to be quite confident in a way to uh, uh, abide in a, in, in a vision of life 
knowing that right now you really feel nothing is happening and it's not working and you're no good and you've lost the past. And you're just, you, it's so fortunate to have a teaching that can turn you from believing your thinking to listening to your thinking. Do you understand? A big difference, like me, being involved, I could have been really stressed out with the car starting to redo them and thinking I have to write to Citroën to do some better job, you know. I was quite confident <laughs> just to do something that really would be much better than what they're doing here. This poor deux chevaux that we all love. Do you remember this deux chevaux, the French deux chevaux? Right? Why don't they do something fun like this, you know? Like a, it was a bicycle, a deux chevaux on four, it was a bicycle on four wheels, you know, but yeah. Talk to you later about that. <laughs> so, the second cause of suffering is actually something which is goes a little deeper. Is the, the, the desire to become. Well, I will give you the good news at the end. And then the third one is the desire not to become. So, when you become a Buddhist, you begin to you begin to meet that part of the brain and the mind, the body, that is uh, wanting to become something. Like you say, well, I want to be that this beautiful uh, model. You know, she's got such a nice waistline and legs and so on. You know, you want to become thin and healthy and beautiful, you know. And then you start saying, okay, well, I've got to do a diet. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You know, I've got to put more makeup. I've got to do this, that, clear my, paint my, my eyes and my, my hair and all the rest of it. Try to become beautiful. Like this example. Right? So at some point, a week down the road, so you're becoming. What happened? The bad news, the inconvenient news is becoming is dependent also non-becoming. So you go further in that way, and the duality of, my, of our mind is at some point it shift into, it's automatic, what you call blind habit, blind structure of the mind. Go deep. We are actually looking at the basic structure of our ego mind. It wants to become something, and then at some point get fed up. Now, you can, this is what means to be determined and to sustain and to continue in a sustained way with courage, with effort, with mindfulness, with all the quality you can bring together to sustain a project, right? You can actually, if something is good, why not develop it? In fact, it's one of the teachings of the Buddha. Effort to develop the good. And the effort is part of the effort aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path. When you see something good, cultivate it. When you see something unskillful, unhelpful, unuseful, you can begin to really let, go, let it go. And if it is unskillful, unhelpful, uh, you know, destructive, and you see it before it has manifested externally, then you can be mindful of it and see it end. It ends. Because anything unskillful that we attach to is painful. Whether you want to know it or not, it's painful, it's hurtful. And anything we love and want to become and so on, it's painful for us because in a way we are um, going at the, uh, against the way things are. You know, it's like a beautiful sky and then rain the next day. Then you have cold season, hot season, 
very cold season and so on, rainy season, then you have day and night. You know, the world and life is a complex kind of uh, sort of um, uh, journey of change. It's constantly changing. We're part of this nature of change. And our mind is constantly changing. And then we, see, we take it very personally. Things, oh, I should be really you know, a good person all the time. You don't accept the fact that you could be a monster inside, but this monster is not you. That's what you learn in Buddhism. Thank goodness for that. I mean, monster is an exaggeration. It's like comic strip exaggeration, you know, trying to develop inside, and then you meet your little monster. I have a very um, graphic mind, you know, pictures come very quickly. Not vision, pictures. And then you see that kind of, you know, trying to kind of develop meta with lovely description of the heavens and so on. And inside you've got a little monster of anger and rage. I'm just saying, are you going to see me one day and free me? <laughs> Do you understand? <laughs> are you going to talk to me and communicate with me and help me to fly away? Because you know I'm not such a good thing to have around. You have been hurt by me so many times, by your anger, by your frustration, by your resentment. And other people have been hurt by that too. When you project that onto others, hate people. There's a lot of energy in the world that really makes the world the way it is. Do you understand? Unless you really um, train the mind to see the negative aspect of life, the destructive aspect of life, the miserable and painful aspect of life, if you don't see it and actually learn to... Before you can let it go, first of all, you have to accept it. That is a difficult part. You have to be very strong to accept to see the part of yourself which is not beautiful. And for me, my experience is that to be able to do this, you are, sorry, I'm distracted by my little friend out there looking at the video. And so to be able to do this, you have in a way to have a store of good energy in yourself and a store of strength and energy effort. To be able to bear with something that you don't yet know is not yours. Do you understand? You see it, there's still a part of you that sticks, you know, it's like difficult. Because if I see my envious mind, for example, jealous mind, how am I going to cope with that if I just look at it for too long? You don't want to do that. You're not maybe ready to look at that. It's time for everything, you know. But at some point, you know, the, the, I think life has a great compassionate heart somewhere, you know, because uh, nature, I would say, the Dhamma. You know, because I find that, even though people have contradicted me on this, I have a kind of faith, maybe it's a bit of a blind faith, I don't know, but I always have this uh, intuitive sense that life only gives you only what you can bear with, what you can handle, you know. And somebody say, no. I mean, maybe it was a joke or something. No, I've given much more than I can bear through, you know, from life. But personally, as a practitioner, I can see that through my journey that I get this, suddenly realize something at a time when I can realize it, you know, when I can actually accept 
the, the, the things that were difficult and I can let them go truly. Yeah? So, that was the three, no, three causes of suffering, you know. First one, you know, the sense pleasure. It's like I said, when you're a little boy or little girl, you know, you want lots of cakes and lots of this. And we can carry on feeding our little boy and little girls, even in the 70s, you know. And I'm, people I'm looking at, don't think I'm looking at you particularly. I'm just, <laughs> oh, she's talking to me. No, I'm just landed on you. <laughs> my my gaze landed on you. <laughs> so, um, you know, these three aspects of um, the cause of suffering, this is something we know already, wanting to become. And I have to, to say a few things. I wish we could have a bit longer because there's many, so, like, wanting to become. The intellectual mind immediately can grasp at it and say, oh my God. I cannot become a nasty person or unkind or impatient, you know. That's where the meditation and the teaching is, is helpful. Because you remember that the Buddha kind of put patience, the, the, the feeling of patience and um, endurance, capacity to bear with things, at the top of the ascetic practice of the your discipline of the mind, the top, not sleeping on bed, bed of nails and not eating for 48 days or, you know, not sleeping. You know, Buddha didn't say you have to do this. People could be ascetic if they wanted, but it wasn't the path that he, um, you know, in a way um, endorsed as the only way, the way he wanted people to practice. But, um, um, yeah, so uh, this patience is very essential. You don't have to kill what you have inside. You have to develop the strength to bear with these things without moving, without believing. That's what mindfulness is about. The, the refuge in mindfulness is a part of your mind that has stopped moving or never moved. <laughs> You, you know, when you're mindful of something, you notice that which sees, that which knows, that which can, you know, see what is, what is in front of, the, of oneself, doesn't move. It's just this quiet, very still mirror. So you can take refuge in this mirror as your real home. Not the home of your you know, anger up and down, or frustration, or stress, you know, worry, anxiety, uh, fear, and so on. You know, if you take refuge in that, you'll be yo-yoing down the M25 or Duca, you know. The different cars, you know, now you've got fear for gold age, and then now you've got fear because you're not going to get something, a raise in your salary, or whatever, anything. Or you're going to lose your, you're going to lose your partner, or whatever, you know. Or your dog, or are you going to lose your young, beautiful look one day? We all do, huh? <laughs> it's all right. Life is beautiful in any form and shape. This is me making a statement. <laughs> it's not necessarily true, but and so you don't have to be, you know, to become a Buddhist. In other words, and start. 
disliking anything that you find is not in accord with the teaching in, in your mind. Remember when you start taking responsibility to be in a refuge of mindfulness and be the observer of your mind rather than, you know, rather than the kind of deluded entity of your mind, then what happens, you know? You begin to see things really shifting. Shifting. And this patience is so needed because you might not see things shifting very quickly. Ajahn Sumedho used to remind us, you know, the way you will know things are changing in you is by the fact that your reactivity will be lessened, for one thing, and then you kind of push button reactivity, you know, immediate kind of, you stick to somebody straight away. You know, I'll give you an example in a minute. You know, this reactivity is decreasing. So you let people be free, and you're free, freer yourself. Like I was at, um, yesterday I was in Cambridge, a university there, at the University of Cambridge, we were having a day long on, um, on the topic is like actually an organization called Inspire Dialogue with uh, uh, the ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, Ron William. And it's really interesting because we had, uh, it's, it was called uh, Dialogue with Difficult Situation. And there was uh, two people who we focused during the day and uh, sort of the morning and then, then we have this kind of group discussion after that. You know, but you know, the uh, wanting to have good communication with in diff- you know, difficult situation, conflict, and so on, worldwide, you know. And uh, <clears throat> you could see, and I even saw it myself, but I, you know, I, I saw it quickly, you know. So the conditioning was, um, there was a woman and a man. You know, one was a Hutu, the other one was a Tutsi. One was a had been sort of named as a perpetrator, and the other one as a uh, survivor. You know? And not by the people in the conference, but just how they kind of see, people can see them, you know. And what was interesting is that at some point, the person who was the uh, Tutsi was really, they had, she'd spoken, he had spoken with this young woman, fairly young, I mean, 30-something, and she was uh, the the the, the, the uh, uh, daughter of a very uh, high, you know, one of sort of top general in the country, you know, in Rwanda. And they had obviously a very good connection. You know, they had kind of created a good connection between the two to deal with this communication dialogue. And at some point, uh, you know, the person, this is something that can happen to anybody here in this room, any time. It's like, so we're about 50. And um, the man just said, um, is that I can, you know, he was saying, oh, I would like to invite you. He was president of an organization who deals with conflict and, uh, so, you know, survivor and uh, traumas and so on, to help to the young generation to get over what happened in their country. And then he just said, I would like you to do this. When I'd like to invite you to a particular meeting in Rwanda, I want you to do this. I would like you to do this and this and that. And in me, straight away, there was that thing, 
God, another guy who's trying to get a woman to do what he wants, you know. Now, it's not me. Don't, this is his voice come from far, long, long ago, you know. And I tend to be French, so I'd, you know, I'm quite outspoken in a way. And so, um, so I listen to that voice. You know, I just listen to it. Because I've seen that voice a number of times. There's a familiar voice, you know. But I don't believe it. And so... What was funny is that after that, the, many other women had, had the, same, the same thoughts, you know, in their mind. And it was really interesting because when we had a group together, one man, it was only one man in that, that particular group, we moved from group to group, one man, who was a scientist, an American scientist, he said, um, you know, well, he gave me the, the, the mind, his mind vision in a way to us. He said, well, actually, for me, the, the way I saw it, because all the women say, yes, yes, that's true. You know, he was trying to kind of get her to do something maybe she didn't want to do. That's how we, we saw it. Many women saw it. And you don't know until you talk to the person, you know, who said that. And that's my, sort of my, uh, say my loyalty is to actually to always go to the source rather than uh, believe people. And so he said, well, no, actually, he was talking about his, you know, because his vision I wish that you would do this. So he was just sharing his mind and vision he had in his mind. Do you understand? A lot of the time, we catch, we kind of launch into somebody thinking that they're asking us to believe them. Have you noticed that? This is very important. We relate to each other and respond to each other as if we've, you know, we've been told what to think. And then suddenly you back off and say, well, actually, blah, 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 blah. We react, in other words. It's so quick. And that's why the listening, you know, all these courses on listening, all these kind of uh, uh, skills that listening rather than reacting or even responding without listening for a while are so prominent in our society nowadays, you know. And all these courses in, uh, you know, nonviolent communication and commu inside dialogue and so on, you know. So that all these things are very important. And not to leave you, you know, so patient. Remember, don't turn into a Buddhist as an idea. That would be absolutely hell for eons of time. <laughs> not eons, but a long time. Don't try to become something that you are not yet. Just let the Dharma help you the process of just working with the Dhamma inside you, see the Dhamma rather than me having a problem, being terrible and I should change and I should be so different, I'm hopeless, I never see anything right, blah, blah, blah. I'm not seeing you in that mode all the time. Eh? <laughs> I'm sure you've got plenty of lot lovely, beautiful, friendly, happy mode as well. But I'm talking about dukkha, this inconvenient truth, so we can focus on that, thanks to the title. I may not focus that much otherwise. So, when you, um, you know, have you, we can, question and answer you can ask me then if you haven't understood what I'm trying to say. But just to carry on with the last two, um, you know, noble truths, you have Niroda, which is the ending of suffering, cessation of suffering. Fortunately, the Buddha, with this greatest compassion, absolutely, Infinite compassion left us a teaching that actually works. Never mind 
next life, never mind what happened past life, it works. It's practical, it's doable, and the result can be seen with our own eyes. So that's Niroda. It's called peace, it's called cessation, sometimes it's referred to as Nibbana, sometimes, you know, it's just the ending of suffering. And it's whole, as Dachin Sumedhu would sort of call it, it's an acquired taste. Why? Because we don't taste it that often. We need to get used to the new taste of letting go and the peace after the letting go. He would say, he taught us how to look at this, and I think that's very important. He said, we can notice all the things that arise in our mind. We really get excited, or we can react to what goes on in our mind, right? But when they die, we just already gone on to something else. We haven't noticed the moment when things, when we abandon things, when they let go of things, when things have shifted, and as you do that for a certain time, that dukkha not only go, but at some point it doesn't come back. If the fuel is still there, if the engine is still there, it will come back. And how do you fuel the engine? By believing what's going on in your mind. I call the sticky part of the mind. You know, you stick to them immediately. You know, suddenly somebody says something I don't like, and immediately you sort of react. Oh, it's you, it's all, you always say that, you know. <laughs> Straight away. That's not compassionate, is it? Do you listen to people as they are and not judge them? Can you listen to yourself as you are and not judge it? It's so quick. It's like lightning. Before you even f finish your sentence, you already shot something in somebody else <laughs> with your words. So, and then of course, the next steps is the path, Maga. So you have, so the Noble Eightfold Path, I'm saying, most of you have read enough Buddhist book to know about the Noble Eightfold Path, and I would like to, to have a show of hands for those who don't know the Noble Eightfold Path yet. You Sri Lankan? Oh, okay. You can be forgiven. <laughs> joke, joke. I'm teasing. So, um, most people know. I didn't, I'm sorry, I got distracted. Shall we show your hands again? <laughs> Okay, just few people, very few people. So we'll go through this later on, maybe, because eh? it's about nearly three fifteen. So we kind of went over the hour. So hopefully this has been helpful. <laughs>